Hello and welcome to another episode of the It Depends Podcast. Today we're here to talk about how to write good code. I'm Daniel Pritchett and I have here with me Jesse Brown. Good to be here again. David Mo Mohundro. Hello. And Ben Robin. Hello again. Good to be back. So exciting. Just a reminder to everybody listening, you can reach out to us on Twitter, join the conversation by tweeting at clearfunction or hashtag it depends. We have an outline on the board for uh, how to write good code, and I think Ben wanted us to know that the opposite of good code is a code smell, so we can talk about what is a code smell. Uh, Mo, what is a code smell? Oh, man. <clears throat> on the... So code smell is an interesting concept, right? Mm-hmm. I think that it's the terminology comes from the fact that it's really sort of hard to put into definitive mm. words. It's sort of like... Hey, does this smell good? Yeah, it does. Can you tell me why? Because it smells good? It's the, People have tried to uh, go and sort of list, mm-hmm. you know, quantify some of them. Quantify code smell. Yeah, quantify. But, I mean, to some degree, it is a little bit subjective at times. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there are, you know, just a maybe a good example of code smell that most people agree on is uh, magic numbers, you know? Sure, yeah. So it's like you have... Uh, one, two, five, five, six in your code, and it's mm-hmm. repeated. It's like, what is the purpose of this? Mm-hmm. So, I mean, there's almost two code smells there. One is you've got, re- you know, duplication. You've got maybe three. You've got a magic number, and you don't have a variable defining or naming what the purpose is. Yeah. So, so you don't know what the number represents, but also right. if you don't abstract it to a variable, you're likely to reproduce it. So whenever, assuming it's business logic that gets changed one day, and your stakeholders say, well, instead of a five, you want a seven, you're going to find them in place fives and sevens in your code base, and you're going to make mistakes, right? That's right. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Yeah, I was going to say duplication is definitely one of the ones that I, you know, for me is pretty uh, obvious. You're like, oh, this this three li- these three lines are repeated five times in this one pull request, and maybe there's a better way to do that, you mm-hmm. know, just so that it changes in one place. There you go. That's a good reason to make something a tiny method that does those three lines and use it over and over again. Yep. So that way, when you change it once, it changes in all of those places. That would be the point of reducing the duplication. I've never thought too hard about the origin of the name code smell, but I guess if I think about it like groceries, like if you smell some food that smells bad, it's probably not good for you. Yeah. But it doesn't necessarily mean that something that doesn't smell pleasing is definitely poisonous or wrong or going to kill you. But You might not be able look. to see the mold on the bread, but you can definitely smell the mold. There you go. I think a lot of times it comes from people who have been bitten by that in the past. Mm-hmm. It may be working great now, but you may have run into a situation where I did that one time, and here's the pain that it caused me. Yeah. It's sort of like you're now running with something sharp, and... It compiles. You might not have compiler warnings, or it runs all your tests pass, but it still might not be the best idea. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that can be really fun to decide how hard, if at all, to push in a code review situation. Like if somebody pushes something that you don't like the look of because it reminds you of past failures or bad days you've had, you might tell them, hey, I think you should be ready this way because it'll last longer or mm-hmm. be more humane in the future. But mm-hmm. They say, I've been working on this for three days. Leave me alone. You know, do you want to push it? Maybe not. Yeah, and maybe they have a whole suite of tests that tell you it works exactly like you, you expect it to, but it just doesn't feel right. You know, right, so. right. To me, that, and, and what Mo was saying earlier, which I think I'm hearing the same thing from both of you, is the heart of the issue uh, today, which is you can write code that does what it's supposed to do, mm-hmm. and yet it can still be bad code or right. just bad design 
Um, and so we're kind of talking about maybe it's, I'm not sure subjective is the right word to use, but it's the more subjective-ish side of it, yeah, uh, the yeah, design true. side of, of writing code. Yeah, I mean, I think it is subjective. I mean, a lot of the code smell that I've seen in the past, like in C Sharp, for instance, were from developers who didn't have a history in C Sharp. And mm -hmm. so I think this probably goes for every other language. Ruby is especially, it's written very different than like mm -hmm. most other uh, compiled languages like .NET or Java. But um, a lot of, I'll see some C++ or C developers come into a C Sharp project and their code looks nothing like the .NET code that mm -hmm. someone who's been doing .NET for half a decade has been doing. And so right. it, even though it technically works and it might do magic things that you don't, don't even understand how it's working, like when you see an unsafe block, you're like, wait a minute, like, do we really right. need an unsafe block? And like, they're like, well, that's just how I would do it in this language. Like maybe it doesn't need to be unsafe. And they're just not asking the same questions of someone who's got the more experience in that particular framework or rule set or, you know. Okay. I think one of the one of the questions we end up asking a lot of each other around here, because we do a lot of Ruby and a lot of .NET, and like you were saying, there's different ways to do things. The same thing in those different languages is, you know, is this the Railsy way to do this? And we've had that conversation a lot, just to try and make sure that we're staying consistent with sort of what the conven expected convention in the language is or in the community is. Even so much as to go is to say follow the conventions for that project. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Not yeah. even just, you know, because if the Rails project was written, originally written by a .NET guy, then, you know, yeah, it might not smell like a Ruby project, mm -hmm. but there's there's a lot to be said about just following what they were doing. Right. Um, other than just, like, being mad about it and, like, your your controller is going to look completely different than all the rest of the controllers that you're working on. Um, yep. To an extent. Up, you know, uh, one, the, I think code smells fall into uh, categories, for example. So some are, this is error prone. Some hurt maintainability or readability for others. Yeah. Uh, so if this code base lasts 5, 10, 15 years, will anyone know what it does in the future versus, yeah, this looks like a memory leak. You know, th mm -hmm. th so there's, there's different categories or severity of code smells as well. Right. And they're sort of harder and softer along <clears throat> this sort of spectrum, if you That's will. That's right. Mm -hmm. yeah. I, this sounds like a good opportunity for this story. I remember a time, Jesse, when you came over and were looking over my shoulder uh, I was asking you how to do one aspect of something I was working on. I think it was on TapGive. And uh, you, you, you pointed it at, at the screen and said, that is massive code smell. And I was Ooh. like, uh-oh, what did I do? And so one of the things that I'll do when I'm working on a feature is code the happy path first. I think a lot of us do that. Get something that works and then refactor to a better design, mm -hmm. maybe, depending on what it is. And at one point, I think I was editing params in line somewhere, which is just something you don't do. Uh, and changed it afterwards, but it was like, I just want, I know this post works the way it does and mm -hmm. accepts these parameters, and I want to make sure that it works with this new thing that I'm adding. And so that was the way I did it. But it's like those kind of sort of one-off funny stories like help you see, yeah, that's a code smell thing. Yeah, and that's more of a convention thing. Like a convention was broken, which is what made me say code smell, yeah, right? It's not yeah. that it didn't work. Right. It's not, know, it yeah, because it, it did work. It worked perfectly fine, right. but... It just isn't what anyone who right. ever worked in that particular like framework or tool set is going to expect it. Mm -hmm. Of course, expect that line. They're going to be like, "What? What are you doing? Yeah, you why would you do this? The parameters to be once the request comes in, you expect the request parameters to be immutable. Yeah, you, you don't could set pass through a whole chain of, of things that. But weirdly, yeah. they're not right because right. they just didn't dictate that the language isn't strong enough for them to be, mm -hmm. you know, throwing errors well, yeah, that's or anything very when rude. it happens. But it's just. You know, it just didn't feel right. Yeah, so. Jesse, you've been talking a lot about what developers are expecting in a code base or in a mm -hmm. framework, and I've often heard that described as the principle of least surprise. Mm -hmm. And that's yeah. just a good rule of thumb when building something. Think about who's going to have to maintain it. Is this going to do 
what they expect. And in, in Ruby, you have bang methods, like a method name that ends with an exclamation point. You'll have, I don't know if they've got a cool name, but methods ending in a question mark. Mm-hmm. The question mark ones are generally expected to return a Boolean. Mm-hmm. Right. You can return truthy or falsy values, like this is a nil or this is an empty string. I personally try to force cast it to true or false, so you really get a true or false, because that's one less mm-hmm. yeah. possible error case. But then you see me doing bang, bang to ca- cast something to a Boolean, so that's kind of weird. Um, An example of that in .NET would be you usually don't change state inside of a property. Mm-hmm. You know, property accessors, getters, and setters. Usually, you'll use a method. Right. You know, it's it's not an always, you know, never sort of thing. But mm-hmm. yeah, and what just, you're saying about always and never, I, Ben said something earlier that had me a little uh, distracted about this being good code and this being bad code. And I think all of us probably agree that we're not really looking for platonic ideal code. Like this is always good and this is always bad. Mm-hmm. We're, right. we're recognizing that engineering is about trade-offs fundamentally and Ben's describing a process where he built something that wound up maybe detouring through a code smell with parameters and that's okay because his process is to make it work and then make it right and then make it fast right so sometimes depending on what it is of course but yeah I mean a lot of times it's easier to code the happy path get something working and then figure out where should where did I do something I shouldn't have done but for some reason the language let me I think I think what we're talking about too is beyond the linter also like these are things Mm -hmm. linters don't catch yeah Yeah. and that we had a previous episode where we talked about tools that help enable team velocity and linters obviously are a big one continuous deployment test suites all of that i would so, say that linters help velocity just to, <laughs> just to throw that out there sometimes they, they slow they, down they, they are a tool that creates a better consistent code base but not i wouldn't say that they improve <laughs> like the speed at which anyone develops anything i love linters yeah to be fair, yeah they're great I, that was a statement that i just had to had i'm gonna to double down on this tangent um <laughs> <laughs> the the semi-official reasoning behind the Go format tool is every programming project and language in history has pointless arguments about yes. brace style and whatnot, and we don't have those arguments here because the tool tells us who's right and who's wrong. I wish right. Go format existed everywhere. Yes. That is an amazing As thing. As do I. Yeah. So having a linter makes me feel like we're halfway there, except our linter rules are all checked into the code base. Yeah, so you have to do it yourself. Like that's not, yeah. yeah. So right. for those of you who aren't familiar, the Go formatter is part of the like Go language. Like anytime you, when you basically compile or save your Go code, like they, it is a default, it automatically formats your code and you do it before you commit your code. It's just like a, it's just part of everyone's life cycle on when you develop code. And yeah. Go. It's, yeah, it gets rid of like two spaces versus four spaces. Do I end in semicolons? You know, like mm-hmm. all those, they're just decided by the Go team and there's no configurability pretty much. Just yeah. And it's really fun whenever I read a big, let's say, Hacker News thread about Go, half the comments are about, well, yeah. I really want to just, I just hate Go format and I want to be able to do it this way. And everyone's like, well, if you insist, you can go for it. But Go maybe is not the community for you. Right. Same thing comes up with generics. There's always 20 comments from Java's.NET programmers saying, I love generics. Generics are like the core of my being when it comes to professional pride. This language doesn't have them, so there's a problem with the language. People are like, okay, this language is probably not for you. I mean, yeah. Yeah. I do think, so So something on, we had the tangent with linters, and one of the things that, there is a category of tool that is not necessarily a linter, but linters or tools like them can sort of help with some finding code smells, mm-hmm. and those are things like, this might be a memory leak. Yeah. They're they're sort of static code ana- right. analyzers instead. Mm-hmm. Yeah, code analysis. And so, like ReSharper and 
uh, Clang has a analyzer. Yeah, yeah. Sort, it's, right? th- those yeah. things can really help you sort of learn some of the common ones. Yeah. Um, there's going to be some others that are just community-based. Uh, what, what I find interesting and why I like them, uh, here we do a lot of, we jump around between languages often. And so there are practices that say in one language you absolutely should do mm-hmm. that in other languages can come back and bite you. And so it's one of that's one of the things that with code smells, for example, that's just sometimes a code smell is only a code smell in Ruby. Yeah, a like I know s- when I started writing .NET with you guys, I was putting static methods everywhere because I taught myself the habit of using class methods in Ruby for a lot of things. Mm-hmm. And then by doing that, I was making statics all the time because I wasn't really used to the same style of object management you get in .NET, and I wound up backing off and doing more instance methods. Right. Because. Right. I wasn't trying to make it static. I just was used to the mm-hmm. way it looked on the screen, typing class or module name dot method. And right. That just implies a completely different set of things in .NET. They w- weren't helpful over time. I wound up undoing most of that. I, I was taught in uh, school, for example, to not have multiple exits from a method. Yeah. And I think a big part of that comes from C mm-hmm. and having, you know, maybe even having go-to statements in your code. But yeah, if you have a long method and there's only one return value, then you can sort of look at that and say, okay, I can look at the value of this here, Mm -hmm. and I know this is what's returned if there's multiple return statements, but at least in the last 10, 15 years, guard clauses have become very nice, and they're all about reducing nesting. Yeah. You know, and so at the beginning of the method, return as soon as you can. Mm -hmm. And that means that you don't have multiple branches of logic, but I don't know if that's a... Maybe C is written that way now too, mm-hmm. but you know, there's there's some mm-hmm. things where it's like, you know, there, there's a reason for some of this, and it's yeah. more ma- about maintainability than pure rightness of like reasoning right. about the code. Yeah, because yeah, like doing one return statement might technically do something, so a compiler makes a better version of it compared to like multiple returns and multiple guard statements. But like, I don't know if that's true or not. But like, that may be one of the reasons that they sort of fell into that like one return, and then but now I think we are sort of is turning towards more maintainability versus mm-hmm. like correctness of like the computer science thing. Oh yeah, like, it we, makes we me let... twitch when you talk about compiler optimizations. Like yeah. personally, I don't want to be a compiler. I know Absolutely. when I first started Ruby, there were a lot of people who'd say always use single quoted strings because they're faster, and never use double quoted strings. And I always wanted to do double quoted strings because I liked it for interpolation reasons. I've since backed off because well, you Ruby can't Cop interpolate is... single quoted strings can you that's why he's saying i just yeah. always use double so if i needed to interpolate i could just okay. drop in the message yeah. it would work yeah. but yeah no rubicop won't let me so i'm okay with that's that right. <laughs> and i understand that it makes yeah. sense from readability perspective you can look at a single quoted string and say oh it's not going to interpolate but anyway yeah i never wanted to respect the argument that if you habitually write your strings this way your Absolutely. code might be faster somewhere like yeah, yeah. how often is the bottleneck in your rails app going to be a <laughs> double quoted string i don't know yeah yeah my point there is that we write at a much higher level these days than they did back when you know in computer engineering first began and so i think a lot of these optimizations are going to be made by the compilers of the runtimes yeah um for you as much as they can um it's not always true of course but i think uh yeah so that's one of those things that we just it has changed over time that we have to know of so most talking about guard clauses earlier and to me I first started thinking about that probably a decade ago because of a Stack Overflow, not Stack Overflow, Coding Horror blog post. I can still visualize <laughs> Jeff Atwood's screenshot of quote-unquote arrow code. Yes, so if absolutely. You're, imagine a 
a method that does one thing, but it has 10 different preconditions. Like, don't actually do the thing unless A, B, C, D, E, F, G are all true or false or whatever you need to be in the right spot. So, a naive case in a C-style language would be if X, then inside that would be if Y, inside that if Z, if A, mm -hmm. if B. Once you get through all of your ifs, you finally have the one-line statement. And uh, Jeff called that arrow code and showed a demonstration, all the nested ifs. If you indent over once for each if, you've got a big arrow visualized. So hopefully we can get that in the show notes. But by adding those as return faults or throw an error or whatever at the top of your method, unless then you have your code easier to read. You have all the preconditions in one spot, and then below it you have the actual action. So yep. a few years ago I read a great uh, bit from Avdi Grimm, who's a Ruby blogger, about uh, confident code, and he visualized methods in three sections. So at the top, you have your preamble code, get things set up. In this case, evaluate all the preconditions. So yes, most just looked it up on his phone. So that'll definitely be in the show notes, arrow code. So Avdi's got the preconditions. So quit the method if this, this, and this aren't true. One that we talked about in our code review lunch today is in Ruby, you're going to occasionally assert that an object is a particular type or fits a particular interface. So you've got a string coming in. One of the first things I'll do sometimes after reading Abdi's book is this variable equals that variable dot to string. So blow up if it's not a string. And then your, compile, your runtime error is I tried to stringify this unstringifiable thing. And then in the middle, you do the work. And then the final block is do the cleanup. So maybe it's reformatted to pass out to somewhere or call an associated mm -hmm. service. And so taking that and then mapping it back to Mo's talk about not returning, not having multiple returns, to me, I think my relaxed perspective on that would be don't return from the middle of a method. I mean, you yeah. might have guard meth guard stuff. So these are all the reasons that we can't do it at all. And then at the end, you might have to do multiple returns. Like if this, in this case, go this way, or that, in that case, go that way. And the, But in the middle, when you're doing the actual work, aside from exception handling, you shouldn't be you shouldn't be returning willy-nilly because that's going to make it impossible for the reader of the code to follow it. You don't know yeah. where they're going. If a method can end in 18 different ways, you're never going to be able to yes. logically right. build around it. Yeah. So that that reminds me just a little bit like a code smell for me sometimes is if I see code that has, we'll say, just making this up, a page of documentation at the beginning. So a code block that is a page long or something and, or, or, you know, sometimes there's, uh, I've seen teams where they dictate that every method should have a comment mm -hmm. on it. And the, the method is, uh, process log payment process transaction. Mm -hmm. And the comment block is process is a transaction. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. It's like, this is worthless. Yeah. But suddenly when I see those, the value for all the other comments suddenly tanks. Yeah. I don't value the comments. I would rather have well-named methods, well-named variables. Mm -hmm. And when I see a comment block now, I'm like, wait a second. I better look at this. So you start subconsciously skimming over all the comments, yeah. which lowers the it, value. It, which it, is not a good thing. It hurts readability for me. Mm -hmm. And I start glossing over, and I don't mm -hmm. look at it as closely. Another good example is in a gem file, if you're doing gem cloudinary, and the comment explaining the use of the gem is cloudinary stuff. The, those sort of comments, like the cloudinary stuff, like I, I am guilty. I have to, I have to consciously 
go back before I commit. Like I will pseudocode everything in like a comment. I'll be like, yeah, oh, grab yeah. this transaction, do this, do this, do this. I'll have like 10 steps and then I'll start coding what I, what I want to happen beneath those comments. And if I don't go clean them up, like inevitably someone like Mo's like, why are these comments that say like, you know, uh, fetches a transaction. The next line is like fetch transaction. You're like, well, yeah. boom. it's because I wrote it in pseudocode first. Yeah. Um, but I do have to like remember to delete those. Or if you're working similarly, if you're working on something complicated logic wise, you may um, try some code that doesn't work. Comment that code out and try something else, and then forget to delete the comment or reword yes. the comment. Commented out code it. is that's another. Bad, I mean, yeah, that drives me crazy. I uh, I will often if. If I'm working on a feature that takes days or weeks, I will often, once I get around to a pull request, have some vestigial methods that don't actually do anything. Mm -hmm. And I appreciate it when, at a pull request review, someone says, hey, what's this method doing? It looks dumb or not helping. Well, don't say it looks dumb. Try to make your code reviews <laughs> instructive <laughs> exercises. <laughs> don't personalize them either. Yeah, it's hard enough not to keep it, or to keep it not personal. You don't have to attack right, the, right. Uh, the code. What were so, you thinking? What I meant to say is, <laughs> someone correctly identifies some code that doesn't do what it says or doesn't need to be there, and I'm usually happy to have them point that out because that means my final product, I can delete it and send in a slimmer code request or pull request. Now, this reminds me, a great video I watched from Zed Shaw, which was on Peep Code. Mm -hmm. You can probably still buy it, but he demonstrated building a feature out. And his workflow, as he described it, was understand the requirements, build out a prototype, delete it all, and then write it properly write it in one pass. Yep. So just thinking about what I've do done wrong in recent pull requests and the process Jesse was describing, it's kind of cool to imagine now that I've spent three days figuring this out, I could throw it away and write it properly in three hours yeah. and not have all the extra junk sitting around. Maybe I'll try to remember to do that more often. Yep. I have a story about that. I was writing some code for like, I don't know, probably like a day, maybe, maybe a little less, maybe a little bit more. And then uh, I asked Mo for some help with Git, and he told me to do to do <laughs> Git dash C, and not knowing that I haven't committed anything, it deleted get everything. Git clean dash F. Yeah, Git clean F, and it literally just deleted everything that was in my directory, you know, at Sorry. the time. And uh, my bad, because it was like a brand new repo, so I ended up getting to rewrite it. But I rewrote it in like four hours, so I probably like half the time, and it was probably <laughs> better code at the end. But uh, but yeah, so Mo just forces that on us here. Okay, clear function. Thanks, Mo. Yeah, you know. Did he need you to come in on Saturday to rewrite it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. Over the holiday break, actually. Oh, I see a note on the board about you learned it wrong in college. I think that was prompting the debate on guard clauses. Any other things that you guys remember learning? Uh, comments are a good one. I remember 100-level yeah. yeah. classes. Like, oh, here's commenting. You better explain everything. And it's always like yep. adds the number one to the number two and mm. gets back at three. And yeah, it's, it's nice for the students to understand that commenting is a thing. Right. But... I I yeah. think a big part of that in school is to help them explain in English what they're doing. Right. Because if you can if you can walk through it in English, then that means you understand what you wrote. Right. But the so, methodology for teaching comments in that setting, at least the one that I experienced, completely defies the point you were making about useless comments. Like if you're writing well designed code that is quote unquote yeah. self-documenting like you, someone can look at it who is a programmer and knows what's happening then you don't need comments and if you keep putting more and more comments in, like in my classes if you didn't comment your code it was like a oh you missed missed Absolutely. some points yes. Yes. which it's like that's you're just doing Mine it for well. no reason it's arbitrary right. so when i was younger and i guess still sometimes when i'm trying to figure out a design maybe at the class level i'll occasionally just write out a series of comments to describe what i think mm -hmm. i'm going to do i do too and then I'll fill it in with code, and sometimes that comment will become a method name, and sometimes mm -hmm. it won't. But 
it's sort of like writing an outline and then backfilling all the content. So I, I wound up using that as an example of how you could do TDD instead mm-hmm. in a Absolutely. recent lunch discussion. So rather than writing out your 10-line outline of comments, why don't you write your basic method in your test file? Mm-hmm. So the, mm-hmm. the call bin class calls bin, right? And assert, yeah. and then it would just throws an exception and start building in from there and then write this condition, that condition, this test. Yeah. These are all things that are going to happen, and mm-hmm. you can fill it in outside in or inside out with your test rather than just doing the write some comments and then delete them. Stop. Last thing on comments for me is that I think it, you know, the level of comments and the detail depends on what you're building. If you're building a product for your company to maintain, mm-hmm. your level is going to be a little bit different than, you know, Microsoft who's writing .NET Core. Yeah. Every method has a comment, and there's someone sure. who's paid to go sure. through and mm-hmm. make sure that, that comment reflects reflects reality or, yeah, or whatever fair. and it's kind of a part of the pull request process it's in the public open form and like having the comment of what it's supposed to do mm-hmm. over multiple iterations is super important because it's a public api so mm-hmm. that's sort of my point there is that depending if it's going to be a public gem or a public um you know library that someone else can pull in then then documentation serves a different purpose um, knowing whether it'll achieve the goals Oops. that you want when you're evaluating the library um is is a lot more important than like does it yeah, I, I, I think that a big it's knowing your audience. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I read something recently was just talking about how the majority of our job might be reading code versus writing. And I don't know if that's always true, but it's a lot more than say 10% of our time though. Right. Yeah. Yep. It's, you got to go back and interpret code that you've had. You've, you or someone else has written before. Right. So it's just optimizing for understanding and comprehension. Right. Yeah, I think my my point about how I learned it in school regarding comments is not that comments are inherently bad and you shouldn't no, write them. Not at all. It's I think it's more that the blanket rule of this is how it's always done is problematic. Like right. you, every method needs a comment, or or you don't need any comments. Like those are problematic because it just depends, like you said, Jesse, earlier on what what are you writing and what's it for? Who's your audience? Yeah. So that kind of reminds me of the old uh, trollish comment from Dijkstra on teaching students basic is going to rot their brains and they're not going to be able to learn programming properly because they learned something they didn't like about basic. And that's got me wondering about all the other things we teach people, like teaching a first-semester student to write pointless comments so they know what a comment is. Is that a disservice? Just not let them know about comments until they actually need them? <laughs> well, I will say, and I don't necessarily want to make this the episode about how bad college or education <laughs> on programming is, but I will say one thing, one way that I learned um, back in college that did a real disservice to me, I think, was sort of a, block, a black box, like everything's a black box, and if I don't know what it does, I'll just like assume that I'm going to get this back or I give it this, and that's I just don't need to know how, how it works. Like. Mm-hmm. So an example, you brought up static methods earlier, and I don't remember exactly the wording in .NET of the static error, but it's like method that is static cannot receive static or something like that. You're familiar with it if you've seen it. And so the response I was given was, oh, just make more things static. That's not helping at all. That's not understanding why the error like is there yeah. or what do I need static? What does it do? What is the use of it? So the quickest path to resolving that error message is to make the calling object also static, <laughs> yeah. and then which is just okay. not a good a good yeah. way to learn coding. I don't think. Yeah, I think. I mean, we could have a whole other discussion on appropriate learning styles. I've had lots of conversations with teachers who are very, I don't know, self conscious is the right word, mm-hmm. but. 
you know, just like, am I, am I preparing our students well? Right. Yeah. You know, sure. so. yeah, it definitely isn't intentional on, on anyone's part. I don't think it's just in some of these things, I guess you learn in hindsight, but yeah. I, I just know hearing you say that about static reminded me that that was probably a real disservice to me. Well, what Ben's described is a fundamental tension in programming, especially if anybody's got a budget or a deadline, say you write something that works or almost works and it's always tempting to take the shortest path to mm-hmm. finally check off that box you've been aiming for. And get the points. And get the get points. The points. <laughs> yeah. And maybe you're doing yourself a disservice by not stopping. And I know in the past I've been struggling with something, and Ben sent me a link explaining exactly what it was and a two-page blog post, and I didn't read it. I wound up teaching myself <laughs> the whole contents of the blog post like after a week of reading library documentation. But <laughs> I just wanted to get it done and move on, right? right? I didn't consider that to be my primary problem at the time. And it can be really hard to stop and take a deep breath and realize when you're hindering yourself or when you have a learning opportunity in front of you and it's not a waste of time, it's actually useful. Yeah. So what's another code smell area besides, you know, we kind of talked about, you know, the arrow code and and uh, comments that don't mean anything. Yeah. Um, I guess size of objects. Yeah, I'd love to go here. Yeah, 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 yeah. the can. God object, as it's often referred to, right? Or the yeah, God sure. method, where like you've just your whole app boils down to this one method mm-hmm. somewhere, mm-hmm. where like everything's done and refactoring it is the scariest thing that yeah. the company ever could think of. Yeah. <laughs> like Sometimes a multi-thousand in... line controller, mm-hmm. for example. Exactly. Yeah, you're like I could break this out into multiple controllers, but like the business may stop working while I do it. <laughs> right. You know, like gosh, a, like, yeah. when do we have time to take the one thing apart and keep moving? Right. Yeah. You know, Daniel, we often talk on this subject about Sandy Metz rules mm-hmm. of methods no longer than five lines, classes yeah. no longer than 100 lines. I remember a time when you told me the uh, plus minus roll up the method thing, <laughs> you know, to like minimize your, your yeah. long method. Code folding and your editing. <laughs> yes, code folding <laughs> is like a horrible, like unforgivable sin mm-hmm. because people are just like making classes that are too big. Right. So if your editor enables you to sweep your problems under the rug, <laughs> yeah. then that encourages you to disregard them. Even past the editor in .NET, there's regions. I was yes, mm-hmm. which are we're, like, we're both nodding. Jesse and I are nodding our heads <laughs> like, "Hey, don't yeah. you look at this one thing and you're like, oh, this doesn't look too bad. It's only a couple of screens, but mm-hmm. that's because like regions are like default to collapse for some reason. In nested some regions. I think Daniel just regions. heard you say, "Oh, it's only a couple of screens," and he had a little bit of a like hive <laughs> yeah. reaction. Yeah. Only well, a couple of screens, yeah. and then you unfold it, and it's like three thousand lines of code. Yeah. You're like, oh, wow. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. I remember uh, Steve Yeggy talking about Lisp and how mm-hmm. it's super dense and there's way too many parentheses just confuses people. Right. His assertion was that as a programmer, you can only fit one vertical screen height of code into your brain. Mm-hmm. So yeah. he prefers dense code because if you can express the entire thought or algorithm or whatever in a single page of code, then you can maybe understand it. What font size do we agree <laughs> I think it depends on how old you are. And I'm not sure. I'm not sure if there's any correlation between eyesight and uh, ability to fit code in your head. I will say that though that is something I see a lot with newer programmers is they'll write something really big and it will Mm -hmm. technically work and it will be extremely brittle and I'll always tell them okay I see that it's working but I don't think this is going to be this isn't going to serve you well long term please break it up and we'll all be better off for it like have individual thoughts or algorithms in individual methods and it's really a hard thing to explain to someone. I don't know if that's something you can really teach somebody yeah, without them hard. experiencing it the hard way. There was I was working uh, on a code base uh, with someone here one time, and it was a JavaScript snippet. Mm-hmm. And 
I don't think that they had spotted the duplication because it wasn't verbatim duplication. Right. I saw the pattern that was repeating though. Mm-hmm. And so I refactored it into from, you know, a fairly long it was I was using jQuery. So mm-hmm. lots of nested not not nested, but you know, on load, hook everything up. Yep. And then, you know, and there's a lot of a lot of jQuery code out there like that. I, mm-hmm. I broke it out into some functions and some utility methods. Mm-hmm. And suddenly that thing was able to be used in you know, all of the pages instead of one, and it was all duplicated. And I, I don't know how you train someone to sort of, like, see the the yeah. patterns. It's like, you know, it's see past the matrix, you know? Mm-hmm. I mean... Yeah. Yeah, and I think uh, some tools and languages can make this more difficult. We talked about having regions, which is like an editor thing. And, yeah, you could probably make some, like, RuboCop or ReSharper to be like, no more regions, you know? Um, but then... You've got like .NET has partial classes. Mm. Microsoft themselves loves to hide generated code in like a .generated.cs. That's a partial right. class to something else. And so, uh, which, okay, generated code is a whole nother bucket of like stuff yeah, that matters yeah. or not, depending on, you know, it makes sense in some situations, you know, like, like we always say, it depends. But the, <laughs> uh, <laughs> but the, but even, Ruby has like, you know, uh, mix-ins, right? All right? And so suddenly you've got all these, uh, module insertions that are like attaching things onto objects that never intended to be used that way. And uh, that's a way to like hide code. So you don't have a mega class, but Mm -hmm. really you still have a mega class. Right. right? And so those things are really hard to catch in code reviews Mm -hmm. uh, is kind of my point there. And like long, long files are also hard to catch. Like if they just added like a five line method to a class, like unless they added it at the bottom of the class, like it doesn't really tell you that, Hey, this breaks the rule suddenly of like this is this is your two hundredth line of code mm-hmm. in this class. So. It is good when you if you can see notice that there's three or four digits in your line number in your point of view. And that's always a clue, right? But also uh, we use RuboCop and it'll tell you, hey, you went over the limit. And mm-hmm. if you see that one of your lines of code is disabling the <laughs> RuboCop limit check, <laughs> that'll jump out at you. Yeah. Um, so what you guys have been describing there as far as abstracting things. And what Ben said earlier about Sandy Metz, um, one of the earlier books I read when I started learning Ruby was her uh, practical object-oriented design in Ruby. And I listened to a two-hour episode of her on Ruby Rose, and she talked about a lot of this stuff, like make small methods, small classes. They're always advocating it's not hard to start a new, open a new file and start a new class. Just do it. And so I started doing that, and I really tried to make things dry. And, you know, not repeat myself. And if I ever see something more than two or three times in the code base, I'm going to abstract it into a method. So I've got all these tiny methods that are just hiding stuff and making indirection. And then I thought I was doing it well. And then suddenly I'm listening to Sandy on another podcast a few months ago. And she's like, you know what? Beginning programmers really tend to overdo the dry thing. It's just an example (laughs) to give you some training wheels before you learn how to program properly. And that blew my mind. I've been doing Ruby for years now. And... I'm still not sure what she was getting at, but she did say that people use dry and methods to hide repeated code, right? And she's yep. saying, well, I don't need to do that. I can just do find and replace in my editor because I have an editor. And she explicitly <laughs> said that she wants to ab- extract methods to capture patterns and subtle differences. So if you've got something like Mo was just describing where the same type of thing is happening in 10 different places, but it's subtly different in every place, then mm-hmm. that's the foundation for some sort of extraction is this is what we're doing. Here's how it's subtly different in each place. And that might be your configuration or parameter for your method. And I guess I have to buy her new book now so I can yeah. stop yeah. feeling uh, 
insecure about how I've been following Sandy's advice all this time. Yeah, I always follow the rule of threes on duplication, right? Um, mm-hmm. I don't even know who said it. I'm sure other people have heard it as well. Like, you know, the first two times you do it, it's probably not the worst thing ever. But as soon as you've done what what you're sure is the same thing three times, then now's the time to talk about, you know, um, finding a place for that piece of code. So yeah. that it's, you know, maintained in one place. You can definitely go extreme the other way as well. Mm-hmm. 200 one-line methods is not any better than... Yeah, and that's probably more where she was going. I didn't listen to it, but yeah. like, you know, it, I think it's probably just intuition and knowing like mm-hmm. if this class is already like, you know, 100 lines of code, then probably adding any more code here doesn't make sense unless it's, you know, very specific to this, mm-hmm. you know, to where you're at. Yep. Yeah, to me, that goes back to what Mo was saying is how do you teach this stuff? And I think you're right, Jesse. Yeah. Intuition is the word you used. I think I think there is some of that of just experience of having done it and knowing this is what feels right and this is what doesn't. You can't always sort of objectify it if you want to use that word. I was trying to look for this here. Uh, we were talking about, you know, small code versus dense code. Just This is more just something that's interesting to look at. Uh, Peter Norvig. Mm-hmm. Um, Yes, he's at Google, and so he has gone through some. I think Ben just swallowed his soda. <laughs> he's at uh, uh, Google. I Google. looked at my phone to double this check company to make named sure. Google. He may not be at Google now. You may have heard of Alphabet Google. Alphabet. Google. Yeah, Google. Yeah, it's Alphabet now. No, it's not. Partially it is. Anyway, <laughs> so he's written some really, you can look at the code and uh, just some of the Python code that he's posted. Mm-hmm where it's like trying to solve some, you know, like Project Euler or something like mm-hmm. that. And it's just, it's five lines of code, and it's crazy powerful what mm-hmm. all it's doing in those five lines of code. And so it's just, I don't know. I, I always look at that, and I think, I have no idea what that's doing. Right. It is outside of most of the problem spaces that I'm working in, but, you know, it's just going from, you know, for, for someone who is in that problem space, though, it makes a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. But it's just interesting discussion, and I'll post a link to that. We'll make sure a link to that's in there, too. But I feel like short methods um, encourage, like, code golf to an extent. <laughs> uh, if you haven't heard of the term, it's, like, basically, like, you know, golf is you're supposed to have the fewest number of swings to get to the hole. And, like, they'll do golf challenges all the time, like certain code where you're like, oh, yeah, I need to uh, remove this from a string, you know, or a collection of strings in an array. And, like, mm-hmm. you know, who can do it? It, you know, uh, this became familiar to me when Microsoft released Link, you know. Oh, yeah. So Link to yeah. Objects is like the ultimate, like, golf mm-hmm. winner because you can make anything one line if you try hard enough. <laughs> and uh, so that, that's where one I One line that, that ends stuff. in a semicolon but might have <laughs> 20 line breaks or... Exactly, yeah. Yeah, the chaining of everything and, uh, and doing a whole map reducing all in line to, uh, you know, coerce it into what you wanted. And so so it, you can you can get into that trap with single lines. Um or, sing, or very small methods, I find people will do it a lot. You can jump into the conversation and chat with us on Twitter at ClearFunction or hashtag it depends. Let us know how you write good code and give us your feedback on anything you heard us say that stuck out to you as helpful. And uh, we'll see you next time. See Thanks, you guys. guys. Bye. Bye. You've been listening to It Depends, a podcast by ClearFunction. Clear Function is a group of happy engineers based in Memphis, Tennessee. We partner with visionaries to bring their ideas to life. For more information, check out our website at clearfunction.com.